Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today I'm talking with Chris Bambury, who's an author, a writer and a media presenter on the impact of Gaza on the entire world. We're going to be talking about how it's impacted the political systems in the UK as well as in America and further beyond. We'll be talking about the South African case at the ICJ and its future prospects, and we'll be talking about what the future holds for our country here in the UK amid the general election. Enjoy. What's happening in Gaza is undoubtedly uh, tragic to epic proportions. I mean, we're talking in terms of numbers alone, they're almost mind-boggling. Um, the scenes are horrific. Um, and I've and, and obviously the, the fallout in terms of the escalation as well as the expansion of the conflict is something to keep an eye on. But there is also the impact of all of this on us here in the UK, across the West. To me, at least, that is probably, uh, I apologize for sounding crass, but probably the most important element and the most stark element of all of this. I mean, violence and killing, especially in Palestine, at the hands of the Israelis, has always happened. Not, not to this extent, not for, for as, as long as we've had it, but definitely we have never had the kind of fallout and impact on the West that we've seen, that we've seen like we've seen over the past. I mean, there is probably going to be an impact on the next American elections because of Gaza, on our general election sometime this year because of Gaza. Uh, surely this is something that is absolutely remarkable, don't you agree? I think there's a, a massive disconnect between uh, the governments and administration in this country and I think particularly in the United States, which I think is very interesting. The opinion polls in the United States indicate they're very similar to those here, about 70, 75% favor a ceasefire. But Joe Biden, genocide Josie Cohen, is continuing to give uncritical support to Israel. Now, behind the scenes, we know there is some criticism, but Israel is now out, out of control. It's off the leash. The watchdog is running wild, but still Biden publicly supports Israel. And that has led to a situation I don't think any of us have ever seen in our lives, where in the United States, there's not only mass mobilization on the streets, we're seeing huge protests, but we're seeing you know trade unions who normally support the Democrats, the uh, automobile workers calling for a ceasefire. We're seeing Congress people, senators speaking out within the Democratic Party, uh, revitalizing a section of that life around uh, Alexandra Cortez uh, uh, and the others. And growing numbers of particularly young Jews, not just, but young Jews, coming out and saying, not in our name. Now, the Jewish population in the United I, States... I personally think that's a game changer. Yeah. I mean, because you've always had voices come out and speak, but, but not only Jewish, by the way, many young Jews whose parents are Zionists, yeah. whose parents actually live uh, in, in Israel. And they're coming out and saying... We weren't told about all of this. No, I think it's it's a very interesting fact. I mean, the Jewish community in uh, America is quite different from here. Here it tends to be sort of the, the old traditional middle class, lawyers, doctors, academics, so on. There, the young Jews tend to be young professionals, high tech, 
quite often precarious working. Uh, they don't have the stake in the system and they haven't, the, that sort of tradition of going to work in a kibbutz in Israel, yeah. uh, which was there, that's died out. So that kind of connection is loosened. And, but they're affected by a sort of wider situation. And we've seen over the last 20 plus years, we've seen a whole series of mass movements against the war in Iraq, against austerity and so on and so forth. And that's fed into it. But I think you're right. I think it is a game changer. Now, what's happening here is, is that Biden looks, as you alluded to, certain in my book, to lose yes. the presidential election. Yes. And Donald Trump's going to win. <laughs> going to win. And I think... You know, it's kind of taken for granted that Trump is just going to automatically back Netanyahu up. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. He is once more coming out and saying, why are we getting involved in these wars? Uh, now, we know last time around he was kind of, he was brought to heel by the defense, uh, the whole military apparatus in the United States. But it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, and going into that presidential election, there is another factor, which clearly things in Ukraine are going badly. And uh, Ukraine seems to be losing the war. And the negotiated settlement seems to be on the horizon. Now, that's another body blow for Biden if that happens. So I think uh, in the United States, there's serious things afoot. I think here, it's quite an interesting situation. I, I think all of us really expected conservatives under Sunak to back Israel up. I think there was no... I think all of us have been astounded by how far the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, has been yeah. prepared to go. Yeah in uh, rejecting a call for us. Just coming back to the point on Trump, because I think that that's quite important. As you put it, many people might assume that as a Republican president, that he's going to you know, back Netanyahu and the Israelis to the hilt. But Trump being the person that he is, and the maverick that he's sort of, and the anti-establishment sort of individual that he has taken pride in, and probably because of which he is likely to come back as president. Because the American people, left, right, and center, have found that the establishment is an impediment to their very best interests. Getting involved, you know, their tax dollars, rather than providing housing for 2 million people who sleep on the pavements every single day, um, is being shipped to fund a war in, in, in Israel or against the Palestinians. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I remember the last time when Trump won, I mean, first of all, Hillary Clinton was just the representative of the American elite, and she was disliked intensely. Uh, and that was one factor in winning. But I also remember making that speech in Flint, Michigan. It says, we once made cars here and you couldn't drink the water in Mexico. Now it's the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that, at that moment, I thought he's won this. Because he's hitting he's the nerve. Spoken, he's spoken the language of the ordinary person. Yeah. No, he's, he's a spoken, fake because he's not. True, he is part true, of the elite. True, of course. But I think, said that, and I repeat, I don't think it's axiomatic. He's just going to say, okay, we support Israel. I think he there is a strong element of his, why people are voting for him. He has to pay attention to that. The promise about no more foreign wars. And that is popular in the United States, clearly. And... My, you know, regardless of my personal yes. despising Donald Trump or whatever he stands for, but, you know, we could do with someone who actually says, you know, enough foreign wars. Yeah. Enough of our pounds and dollars and uh, euros and whatever going to fund killing. Right. I don't think, I mean, I think we have to remember that the last time around when Trump was in, he was essentially brought to heel by the defense establishment and the American military security establishment is immensely powerful and it is the main along with financial power it's the main asset that the united states has in relationship to china and other uh, other states and that means we've seen 
I mean, it's now, you know, over two decades of constant war, uh, led by the United States with Great Britain slavishly following behind, uh, even when it's almost pathetic, like two air, air, uh, air warplanes being committed in Yemen. I mean, that's, that's the extent of it. It's just diplomatic cover, essentially, for the United States adventure. But it's been a permanent war. How do you see the impact of Gaza on, on the media? Because, I mean, I think that one of the, uh, one of the changes that we've said, I mean, how many times have we hit the streets in defense of Gaza, in, uh, you know, d- demanding that the siege be lifted, doing, it's been decades. It's been 17 years. Um, so we've been here before, probably again, not to this extent, not to this level of brutality, not for this amount of time, but we've been here before. But every single time, I remember this, every single time, uh, there's a sense that we've lost the media narrative, that, 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 that there's not, not the kind of caliber of speakers, we're not putting forward the, the kind of, of, of narrative that convinces the British viewer or the Western viewer generally. But things, in my estimation, things took a slight turn uh, when a few years ago, the story of Sheikh Jarrah and uh, in Jerusalem where people were being um, kicked out of their homes, literally in front of screens and the such. But this time round, the narrative has been absolute landslide in favor of the Palestinians. What's gone on? Well, I think that's been building up for some time. Uh, I think we have seen, as you said, major demonstrations every time Israel, Israel has made an excursion into uh, Gaza. And of course, in 2006, and there's also the whole legacy of 2003 in Iraq, which is very important because this is not disconnected from what's happened, the, the wider picture in the Middle East, which has become very apparent. You know, this is the danger of it escalating further is, is there. But I think what's really important here is that uh, social media is very important, but social media is very shallow. Uh, I think what's changing now, the feeling I get, and I get this from talking to people, uh, interviewing people, discussing with people and all the rest, is that many people who previously would have just taken the news, taken their information just from social media, are now beginning to go much further. They want to find out what, is the roots of this. And they're beginning to pick up on, maybe they're not reading Ilan Pape or people like him, but they're watching on YouTube, his documentaries. They're picking up in this and they're beginning to find, and they are reading. They are and, reading. And, the, you know, many of, for instance, my son's friends and colleagues, they're coming up to him and saying, you know, have you heard of something that we're reading about called the Nekba? You know, and uh, and we're reading about Zionism and we're astounded. I mean, is this truly where it all started and how it all began? And you're absolutely right. I, I do think, I mean, I agree with you that social media just gives you the, the very, the froth on the top. But what it's helping doing is that it's, it's raising questions. Yes. And for some reason, for some reason, youngsters today are inclined to go and search. Yes. And to find out. And they're not going to the BBC or to Sky or to CNN for, for information. They're finding on their own. And they're also quite open to forming links with people directly. Yes. To hearing from people on the ground. And they're connecting with Palestinians and they're discussing with Palestinians and they're hearing the stories firsthand, basically. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's been almost akin to a revolution in terms of awareness. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my two sons, 13 and 17, I mean, I, I've never been able to get them on a demonstration <laughs> before. They went quite voluntary on the 11th of November. 
off their own bat. Yeah. I, I didn't say to them, you need to go. And I'm like, that doesn't work. But they went. And, and that, that was when Suella Braverman yeah. was labelling yeah. marches. Hate marches. hate marches. That's right. Uh, but I think you're right as well. And it's also interesting on social media because some of the stuff that's now appearing is, is actually not just so shallow. You're getting uh, stuff from uh, Middle East Star and Middle East Mar And then they are beginning to discover those websites, discovering Al Jazeera. Uh, it's coming Islam channels, it's coming various other things. And as you say, going deeper. And if you open up some of those websites, you're going to get some really interesting stuff, really interesting stuff. And you discover people like Peter Oborn. Uh, you even discover that in the BBC, there are certainly some good people True. like uh, Jeremy Bolton is, is good. You've absolutely. got to dig around to find absolutely. him, absolutely. but he's, uh, he, he's actually got an analysis. So I think you're right. I think it's they, they're finding more in depth on social media, and then they're pursuing it. And suddenly you get people come up to you and saying, oh, have you heard this guy called Newman Pappy? You say, yeah, I have. But, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I've come across his name yeah. before. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that, I mean, there is an indelible impact. The question that remains is to what extent? I mean, and let's let's be absolutely honest. I've just, uh, by the way, I I was touring Scotland uh, just a few days ago, and I took part in a local demonstration in Glasgow in front of the BBC, and I spoke at universities and various other places everywhere i went everywhere i went and regardless of the audience the question that came up is what do we do in the next general election now in scotland things might be slightly easier in terms of there being the smp and it sort of presents uh, an acceptable alternative to the others so that might be slightly but but overall, people are truly concerned. Once again, and I say once again, not in terms of this being a continuation, but there was a time a few years ago when people said, we need to care about our votes. We can't just throw about, you know, be, uh, backing Labour or whoever just willy-nilly. We need to consider our votes. And then something died, died off. But now, once again, there's that vigour to make sure that the vote means something and that and Gaza, uh, that kind of impact, also has a play, has a role. Within the diverse issues that we all suffer, there's a you know, cost of living crisis, there's the NHS, there's everything you know, that we have. But Gaza has all of a sudden become part of that package that it's people are concerned. It's become simple for it all. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because people see it's part of a neoliberal template, in a way, uh, which Israel shares with the United States, the UK, and West, all the Western European. But I think it's worth recalling that in the wake of the 2003 uh, Iraq war, which in Scotland, the SNP opposed yes. and spoke against, one of the achievements, and then following the 2006 uh, South uh, Lebanon war, where the SNP spoke out as well, and he did it get when the subsequent attack on Gaza when they were off. What happened? One of the legacies which came from that was in 2007, the SNP were elected to the Scottish government. And then going further down the road, after the independence referendum, Labour was wiped out in Scotland. Uh, and that's a game changer. So, uh, I mean, Hamza Yusuf has, put, has done well, I think, around the whole Gaza episode, both personally and as a political leader. I think in England and Wales, it's more difficult. I think because there isn't going to be an alternative. I think I suspect uh, Labour Starmer will get in yeah. because there is an alternative and people want to get the Tories out. But there's a caveat there. Certainly, I think in Islington North, if Jeremy Corbyn stands, he will 
be elected. I think there's no shadow of doubt about that. And second, I think in other areas uh, where there will be candidates, for instance, at Ilford North, where there's a very, very good independent candidate who, as you say, is uh, very strong in the whole uh, Palestine issue, but is also attacking the sitting Labour MP, Wes Streeting, for being in favour of bringing private companies into the National Health Service. They've developed a very good platform. Now, West Streeting's majority is 5,000. Let's see. Uh, obviously, he'll appeal to every Lib Dem and Tory voter to back him, uh, to keep uh, keep these people out. You know, I, I agree with you absolutely that um, it's extremely unlikely that Labour won't get in. I think that that's, that's, that's a surety. But what I think will happen is that the majority that Keir Starmer was hoping for before October is nowhere near, you know, possible right now. Yeah. And I think that that in itself, I mean, you talk about West Streeting, even if he wins, but by a much reduced majority, that will be that will be a shock of terms, and that will mean that you know, basically Gaza and the the pro Palestine campaign has had an impact. Well, I think there's uh, there's two things I'd say. I think he, uh, already Starmer at the beginning of these protests over Gaza, you couldn't get a Labour MP to speak. They've been intimidated. Now they're queuing up. So that that's a change. Come the general election. We're old enough to remember 1997. Now, when Tony Blair got elected, he actually had things to offer. We forget about that because Iraq now overshadows that whole government. He created Scottish and Welsh devolution, the London Mayor, Sure Start, the minimum wage. I keep going. There were things he could deliver. Starmer is, is saying, no, we're not going to change anything. There's nothing. There's nothing. And already, before he even gets elected, yeah, he probably won't get elected, as we say, because there's no time. But there's a huge body of suspicion. And what happens if he, as he's indicating he would, next time who's ever in the White House goes off on another military adventure and loyal Britain yet comes in behind him under Sir Starmer, it doesn't, I mean, the Iraq movement is here already, if you like. It's not going to wait from 1997 to 2003, as happened under Blair, for it to arrive. It's waiting. It's a ticking time bomb for Starmer. And I think he's got a real problem there. Uh, and we'll see. Now, of course, they're going to be the Labour MPs will be elected, the new intake will be carefully monitored, carefully selected. They'll be looking out for any tr troublemakers. But even so, I think he's got problems going into office. Uh, I think he has got real problems here. You know, the, the question I was having a discussion with some friends who are considering also talking about the, the next elections. And what candidates should uh, should we back, and from which parties, and and already people are trying to find out who are the ones who were kicked out of Labour with Jeremy Corbyn, and where they're standing, and if they're standing, uh, in order to back. So already there's that kind of discussion. But there's also the question of what kind of impact this will have on Labour, on the future of Labour, and. Um, and and I was actually asked a, a question, I would say sort of a cheeky, provocative question when I was doing one of the lectures, when someone asked uh, about, well, you know, uh, the government has backed Israel, but wouldn't Labour be a better alternative? Um, and I'm sure they were trying to get me to say that actually Labour is long steeped in supporting Zionism, and you'd know about this. Well, it's incredible. Labour were actually, in 1917, three months before the Declaration of the Balfour Declaration, in its memorandum of memoriams, and it's, remember, it supported Britain, British war effort in the First World War. That memorandum supported the creation of a Jewish uh, homeland, or a Jewish homeland in Palestine. 
And virtually every Labour Party conference in the interwar period had motions, either from the leadership or from Paul Zion, the Zionist group which affiliated, had a very small membership. It didn't represent what was then a Jewish working class in London, Leeds, Manchester, Glasgow, elsewhere. And they were passed. And there was a real commitment. So, I mean, Ramsay MacDonald, 1921, visits, visits Palestine to visit the Zionist settlements and writes a pion of praise. You know, this the myth of the sort of desert, they've made the desert bloom. I mean, fast forward, Harold Wilson, when he retired, he was vehemently pro-Israel. And great friends of Golda Meir, back to the Hilton Six Day War. He, on his retirement, wrote a book called The Chariots of Israel, which is, um, and someone said of him uh, uh, that uh, Ian Mikado, who was a pro Zionist MP, left wing MP, said of him that he had no political principles except one uh, support for Israel. And that was the only principle uh, Wilson, uh, Wilson had. And then, of course, we had Blair. Now, there's competition here. Starmer is, represents. One of the reasons why he's taking this position is because he's signaling to Joe Biden, I'll be fine. I'll be a solid Atlanticist. Yep. We're not going to make a shift our foreign policy. There's going to be utter continuity here. Anything you do, we're here. Our foreign policy has been the same as it's been for decades. We don't want to put a cigarette paper between Britain and America here. So that's one reason. But secondly, there is that long-term commitment to support Israel and Zionism inside the Labour Party. And there's also a third reason, I think, as well, why he's doing it, is that Tony Blair, in particular, used support for Israel as one of the ways of hammering the left under Tony Benn, disciplining the left. And it was absolutely central to New Labour. You, if you wanted to get on a New Labour, you signed up to this. So it's in the DNA of Labour. How, how, I mean, it's interesting because when you're talking about Labour, you're talking about quite a vast movement that has various factions within yep. and sometimes warring factions. Yes. Where would you place the trade unions? The trade unions have shifted, and they've shifted quite significantly. Up until really, uh, I would put the first intifada and the, the war in Lebanon, I would say the trade unions shifted. Historically, they've been very close to the history of the Israeli trade union movement, uh, in very close. And they would repeat that myth that Israel was somehow a socialist democracy, the history of which was a big employer. I mean, a major employer back then, uh, you know, was somehow, you know, the fantastic trade union. And we should remember it was founded to uh, to ensure that Arabs weren't employed. I, I had a friend, Jewish friend, he said in uh, in uh, Jaffa, he remembered history members going to the market and smashing the eggs which the Arabs were trying to sell, Palestinians were trying to sell. I mean, that's what it was created to exclude Palestinians from, but that changed. And you suddenly began to saw uh, the trade unions uh, build the firefighters, now, now the teachers, the public sector, Unison, the, P the civil servants, the rail workers. I mean, it's changed utterly. Uh, and we've seen big support for these demonstrations now from the trade unions, big support. And, and you know, there's still a force in British politics, as we're seeing with, you know, the strikes and the, the rail networks and, uh, and, uh, and so on. So that shouldn't be underestimated. So that's changed. Uh, and that creates, again, a disconnect, which is there already with Starmer. Uh, I mean, the, that trade union loyalty to Labour is much reduced, much, much reduced. Now, again, they haven't got any alternative, but clearly you can see that the ma major unions have got really no faith in Starmer whatsoever. 
there are two things that I'd like uh, to uh, to ask you about. The first being the kind of political systems that we have here in the UK as well as in America. Um, in America, the, the the very closely molded two two party system, um, and over here, where essentially we have this volleyball game between Labour and Conservatives, we had a, a blip in the system in 2010 when we had the coalition government, um, but it seems to be fairly cemented in that kind of structure. Um, is there any prospect that there is an element of change that could be brought, especially if I mean? When I look at America particularly, and there was a time when I was really engaged in American politics and and the strife that the the American goes through, you know, when we talk about healthcare and and the such, it's it's almost horrific. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, and there were attempts by various independents, such as Ralph Nader, such as I don't know whom they they sort of stood in order to offer some sort of. But it's it's amazing that hundreds of millions could be poured into what is called the grandest democratic fair in the entire world, and you end up invariably with a a bad and a worse candidate. Absolutely. I mean, as, the, as being the only. I choice. think there's a slight difference between America and Britain in the sense that historically, Labour was tied to the trade unions. Now, the trade unions support the Democrats, but there's no organic relationship. They've got very little influence. Now, the trade unions have got a weakened influence still, even now in the Labour, because those affiliated have votes and things like that. The Democrats and the Republicans are, and there's another difference. Uh, in Britain, it's clear that the Conservatives are the party of choice for our ruling class. Now, that means they have to tolerate Labour governments at different points. But if you look at the, the history, the Conservatives have dominated since the turn of the 20th century. So Labour is the sort of junior partner in that sense. In the United States, you know, it's even Stevens. They're both regarded as safe options by uh, the American elites, by the security establishment and so on and so forth. But I think there's things which are changing. It's, it's extremely difficult to change this system, by the way. It's absolutely loaded in favour of the two parties, even more so than in this country with the first past support system at Westminster. But what we're seeing is changes in the sense that now, going back to the discussion we were having, under uh, Biden in particular, it's quite clear that groups who would have traditionally just voted Democrat, Latinos, who make up a huge percentage of the Democrat support, Afro-Caribbeans are now prepared to switch. To and switch. polls are showing that to support Trump. And polls are showing that. Now, again, I wouldn't particularly advocate them to do this. I don't think it's in their, in their interest to vote for Trump. But it's suggesting there's quite there's a much more fluid situation developing, and Trump's support is very much white male, uh, and that true that is demographic which is not going to expand; it's shrinking. So all both sections here are under pressure, and things are changing now. To get a third party in the United States is historically very uh, difficult. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, the last time I think it was any significant was uh, when Henry Wallace ran against Truman uh, after the Second World War. Uh, and again, the odds were stacked against him. But, you know, things are changing in the United States. And there's a rich history of social movements there as well, you know, which we true, haven't talked true. about. You know, I, I was, my first professional visit to the United States was in 2000. And, um, I recall the very first day I arrived, 
the news broke of the uh, killing of Muhammad al-Durra, if you remember, in Palestine, who was cowering before, uh, behind his father, and yet he was hit by shrapnel. And, uh, and that story was breaking. And I, I was watching in horror. And uh, I, I remember going on tour uh, that very day. We were going to see the sights in New York City. And I remember trying to raise the issue of, of Palestine, which was on you know, CNN no, no, no. and on NBC and on, but no one would, would engage. No one wanted to have that discussion. My hosts, when I presented to them the prospect, for instance, of talking about the Middle East conflict and about Palestine, they, they shrieked with horror saying, no, 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 don't, don't. And uh, it was a no-go area and topic. But now we are in a position where we're having congressmen and women raise the issue of Palestine, condemn the government for its stand on Palestine, its continued unconditional support for, for Israel. We're seeing media platforms, social media, as well as other media platforms, denounce the stand of the Americans by just basically giving a carte blanche to, to the Israelis to do as they wish. That surely, I mean, it might be long coming, but it's a change of significance. It's a real change. And I think it reflects things we've just been talking about. I mean, for instance, if you're a Latino, if you come from El Salvador, uh, you've got very strong memories of what America was backing in El Salvador. And that's true right across uh, South America. If you're Afro-Caribbean, of course, there's huge issues. We're also in a, a, a politically energized Muslim population. Now, it's not huge in terms of the United States, but it is concentrated in Michigan, in Georgia, Texas, to a lesser extent. And you've seen uh, their I, beginnings, I think, of quite a politicized Muslim population. And obviously one that's thinking strategically. And it's also interesting that indigenous, the indigenous people are supportive of the Palestinians because they make the comparison, an obvious comparison between what happened to them under the white settler regime and what's happening to the Palestinians. Same. So I think there's forces for change here. We, we talked about uh, the change in the Jewish population. And these are long-term changes, and they're not going to be undone, I think. Uh, and I think it's similar here. Let's talk a little bit about Europe. We're seeing... We're seeing places where there is uh, quite a positive stand. You know, we saw Spain, for instance, Belgium, um, various other countries. E you know, even in Denmark, by the way, the mass rallies that were hitting the streets of Copenhagen and various other Dan Danish cities almost every single day. Uh, but then, reversely, you see Germany and the kind of conditions and restrictions and bannings and punishments and expulsions and, you know, that, that actually make you think, I mean, have, I mean, I was, I was bold enough to, to post on Twitter, have the Germans learned nothing? I mean, it's, it's, it's like constantly they are on the wrong side of history. I mean, they have the legacy of the Holocaust to, to deal with and to contend with, but then now they're also standing behind, you know, another genocide. They're, they're, they're behind the killer. And not only behind the killer, but they're vehemently behind the killer. They are enthusiastically behind the killer. It's not a political opinion. I mean, when, for instance, in Enhart, when they impose uh, anyone who is uh, receiving uh, a permanent residence or uh, citizenship to sign a declaration that they recognize the state of Israel. This is in Germany, for God's sake. I mean, this is like the epitome of logic and rationale and reason. 
I think you're hitting on something, and I think we should remember that the government is a social democratic green-led coalition, which previously was absolutely driven by, to militarism in support of Ukraine. And the United States got big success there, by the way. I mean, a big success in getting the Germans to increase their military expenditure and effectively neutered the European Union as, as a as an independent actor. Uh, got Britain back in there but in via NATO, which is something they wanted. But the reason, as you're right, the Israelis have used guilt, essentially, in Germany to demand unconditional support, and they've got it. The danger is, is that the only people questioning this, unfortunately, because uh, the left in the shape of Delinka has suffered a big hit, uh, has really collapsed uh, as a result of causing up, essentially, to the SPD, the Social Democrats. The danger there is that the FB, the far right, are the ones who could benefit, particularly actually over Ukraine, which they're against, basically. Now, that's a bit exceptional in, in Germany, but I think you're also touching on something else that's quite important. We've seen this previously in France under Macron, being neoliberal doesn't mean you're neoliberal in terms of, uh, you actually, there's a tendency in neoliberalism for repression on the domestic front, as well as war internationally. And Macron has done this. The liberalism only comes in, well, economically and socially to a very limited extent. You, it's okay, you're anti-sexism, uh, 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 you're anti-discrimination against uh, black people, you're anti-discrimination against LGBT people. But of course, Muslims, and migrants, well, that's a different matter. That's totally different. And it's quite interesting, even in this country, you can get these fantastically liberal upper-class people who just drip out it's clash of civilization versus. stuff about Muslims. It's just unbelievable. We've seen that in Germany, and the level of uh, repression is unbelievable, as you say. I mean, I've just seen a footballer who's been released from his uh, a club for going on social media. Taken to court. Club. Yeah. Taken to court, charged. Yeah. With, I mean, it's it's it belies belief and and... I, I, you know, this brings me on to um, the ICJ case, uh, the South African dossier, which, in, in my estimation, I've I've gone through it. It's one of the best documentations of the crimes committed by Israel against the Palestinians that I've ever gone through, and that includes, you know, some fantastic writings by Jewish as well as by by Palestinian uh, authors. Um, the statement that emerged from Germany and France is, first of all, quite flabbergasting, but also extremely concerning. And that is that, well, uh, the ICJ has no case to bring charges of genocide or to hear charges of genocide against Israel because the Jewish people were subject to the Holocaust in the past century. Um, now, that to me sounds like Israel could do as it wishes. And it's no one's going to ever, ever think or consider of charging them with genocide simply because their forefathers were victims of European pogroms and, and, and genocide in, in, in the 40s of the last century. Now, that's problematic to an extreme because it tells me also, and this is what I fear, it tells me that the ICJ and those... Uh, those remnants of international justice that the people are still clinging on to could be undermined by the position of powerful powers in Europe, such as Germany, such as France, and probably even done away with. Well, see, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about this is suddenly you've got, I mean, I thought it was two things I'd say about the court case. One, I have never known a court case, apart from, you know, the most sensational ones of, of, of sort of murder and things like that. But I've never known a court case get such attention. And we were talking about young people, young people Absolutely. listening. Absolutely. Listening. 
Uh, and I thought really the coverage uh, and the fact that BBC only covered the Israeli really, defense and not the South African prosecution is unbelievable. And that's now become, yeah, everyone knows this. But people were listening to the South African defense team with real intent and it was impressive. Uh, and I think then you've got this attempt the next day, Israel clearly just put its case and it just basically ignored what the South Africans Absolutely. said. And it just said, we've got the right to do this, as you said, because we were attacked by Hamas, because essentially because of what happened to our forefathers in Europe at the hands. And it's never said this. It's always, there's an implication now that this kind of happened at the hands of Muslims. It happened by the most civilized European country of all, the country of Beethoven, you know, of Schiller and uh, of these. This was done by ordinary Germans, educated, cultured, and that's the chilling horror of it, actually, it was done. But I mean, Germany doesn't have to feel guilt because there were Germans on mass who opposed all this. So I mean, the idea they just have to write carte blanche. But going back to then you get this attempt to sort of uh, say, well, what does South Africa know about racism? <laughs> and this isn't going to wash. Absolutely. And it's not washing. And young people, again, go back to it, not just young people, everyone now knows Nelson Mandela's stand. Everyone knows that the uh, ANC opposed white settler states in South Africa and Israel. And it's important to say this because, you know, I, mean, I was talking to Avi Shreef, who regards himself as an Arab Jew. He comes from Baghdad. Uh, he makes the point is that, you know, and I think um, uh, others have made the point that suddenly European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, erupted into Palestine, quite separate from the existing Arab Jewish population who were integrated, uh, you know, spoke Arabic, et Arabic, et cetera, and had a very different culture, a very different agenda. And... You know, of course, they suffered dreadfully, but there was also something else going on uh, going on here. The Muslims had done nothing; they were not part of this. And there's an attempt to produce, you know, a relatively obscure figure, the Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, as if he was the central leader of the Palestinians, which is not true. You know, and he's held up. To, uh, ah, these people are pro-Nazi, and it. But this is wearing thin. And I think the attempt, as I say, to sort of attack South Africa. South Africa has a moral high ground here. And when you uh, heard that case being put, as you said, it was well-researched. It was legally quite convincing. Now, what happens, of course, we don't know. Absolutely. But I think it's important. In I a have sense to say, even... I, felt, I felt the most scared in that courtroom were the judges. Yeah. I have to say. Yeah. I mean, I could see on their faces that many of them were sort of thinking, okay, yeah. where do we go from here? Because the case is so compelling. It is compelling. But I, and I think even if they don't find South Africa guilty of uh, genocidal intent by introducing these emergency measures, which is important to ceasefire, I think the fact that it got to that international court in itself, absolutely, I think that in itself and was a victory. And the fact that hundreds of millions around the world were captivated listening to judge after judge, to, to lawyer after lawyer put forward the case. I think that's in itself as a historic And also, moment. I think the fact that South Africa, Mexico, all these other countries came in behind it, something has shifted fundamentally in the global south, if yeah. I call it that as well. Absolutely. Again, that hasn't happened before in regards to Israel. The, not, the West, if you look at it, it's the United States, the UK, and a few Western European countries are isolated now internationally in their support for Israel. And that is a change as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you, you speak of, uh, of 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 the court case, the ICJ, and uh, I must say that it 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 did represent a historic moment. I was asked about what I thought. I said, well, f first of all, the verdict comes out in years, 
I mean, it's not going to come out next week or next month, uh, but it's the emergency measures that we might benefit that from in terms of the aid, quickly. in terms of, so that's hopefully is coming out soon. But I also added that I don't really care because I think that the history has been made already. The document is out there. People have spoken, spoken on live TV, and they've been watched by hundreds of millions around the world. Well, just look at uh, here, near to here. I mean, you've now had a situation where the Scottish Parliament has voted for a ceasefire. The Welsh Senate has voted for a ceasefire. And it's clear the situation in Ireland is... I mean, massively pro-Palestinian. Absolutely. Because again, of course, of what's happened, they make they're, parallels. They're a relative uh, connection. But I mean, Sinn Féin, people who are profit and the Social Democrats are demanding the removal of the Israeli ambassador they're from They're going Ireland. even yeah. beyond. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, I mean, Sinn Féin is the biggest party, both North and South of Ireland now. I mean, this is significant. And the Irish government has actually had to make some quite strong statements about this. Uh, they're under pre real pressure here in terms of, uh, terms of that. So these, again, changes. Now, Let's come back to England. It's, it's more difficult, as we said, but I think things have changed. I mean, again, talking to the Muslim uh, Muslims across uh, across England, they may vote Labour come the general election. I think large numbers will not. Large numbers will not. But I think, really, that whole question mark now about we vote Labour, that's what we do, yeah. I think there's a huge question mark over it. And that's also true of many, many younger people as well. You have well. to realise that since the last election, more than, I don't know, probably 180, 200,000 new voters have now come into the run. And those youngsters will not have their parents or grandparents stand like, you know, we just vote Labour, that's what we do. Regardless of who wears the rosette, we just basically vote for the red rosette. They won't have that. Yeah. They're far more They're far more inclined to and ask I think questions. There's another thing, I grew up in Edinburgh East in Scotland. And it was the only safe city then, only a safe Labour seat in the city. My dad was in the Labour Party. Now he left and he's not supporting the SNP. Uh, but then we knew the MP would come around, which you, you knew the councillors. Yeah. There was a functioning constituency in ward branches. Someone would come around every month to collect his subs, to actually physically collect his money to sign up. Uh, and they'd have a chat and you heard them. That's gone. There isn't, there's no rooted Labour vote now, as there was. And certainly not again, again in the trade unions, which we talked about. So it's much more nebulous. Uh, it's much more, uh, uh, it's fragile than it you was. You know, the, you pointed to something a little bit earlier, and it's something that I definitely relate to as someone who hails from an Arab background and from Iraq. And whenever we talk about, you know, the Arab streets and the Arab, we always talk about this disparity, this total disconnection between the regimes and between the people. And that, you know, if the people were given half a chance, they would, you know, totally rise against what, and we saw that in 2011 in Tunisia and Egypt and various other countries. Um, and we also know about how people are united, uh, united on nothing but on Palestine. On Palestine, everyone comes together. On everything else, you know, people go a hundred ways. We know that. We know that. But what I never expected in my lifetime was to say almost the same about Europe, the same about America, about that kind of disconnect between the ruling class and between the rest of the population. And I think there's something interesting here because when our rulers Sakir Starmer, for instance, is questioned about this. The fallback position now, it can't be, as it would have been under Harold Wilson or Aaron Bevan, that Israel made the desert bloom. Yeah. It's, you know, that's 
nonsense. nonsense. The fallback note is that Israel is the only parliamentary democracy in the region. Now, first of all, there's huge question marks over, uh, I mean, you know, there's no parliamentary democracy in the West Bank for the major, vast majority of the population or in Gaza. But leaving it aside, why are there no other parliamentary democracies? We know that when the 2011, the Arab Spring happened, uh, Obama, Blair, uh, it wasn't Blair, it was Cameron, hated, hated it and moved heaven and earth to re restore, for instance, in Egypt, to restore an even worse, if it was conceivable, an even worse military dictatorship via coup. And that is a story of, I mean, Iraq. I mean, we armed and supported Saddam Hussein until we made the mistake of going into Kuwait. We provided him with chemical weapons to use as we, we know this story from, uh, I think. But, you know, the, the long history, the coup in Algeria, you know, there's time and time again, the West has moved to prevent Democratic elected governments, Mossadegh, it's not an Arab country, but Mossadegh in Iran. I mean, there's a long story here. So when people say there's no parliamentary democracy in why. the reason, well, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Is it the, the people of Iraq, Egypt, uh, Tunisia? No, it's the West. And it's it's clear, I, I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. It's clear that, you know, the West would rather deal with um, boys from the, the club yeah. rather than deal with the wishes and aspirations of the people whom would cause incredible headaches on every single level. And I recall, <clears throat> you know, and, and pertaining, since we've talked about this, but pertaining to Israel particularly, I remember the very first act of the revolutionaries in Cairo after uh, Hussein Mubarak stood aside was to congregate in front of the Israeli embassy and one of the youngsters scaled the building to the sixth floor and brought down the Israeli flag and they chanted for Palestine. To them, those people who ideologically could differ, uh, on economic uh, solutions could differ, on political issues could differ, on Palestine they were united. Yeah. On the pursuit of their own freedom and for democracy and liberation, they were absolutely united. And that's something, in my view, that's something that sends warning signals to Israel that any emergence of any prospect of democracy and freedom Will be will be a danger of sorts, and it has to deal with that. It has to see its end. Well, I always remember going to Cairo on a couple of occasions uh, in the immediate wake of the invasion of Iraq, and going to conferences, which we could have in the journalist club under very controlled conditions in Cairo. Very controlled. The security forces all around us. Obviously, we were Westerners, and therefore, but it was an interesting alliance uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood, the left in Egypt, and others coming together. They have serious differences. But in opposition to the occupation of Iraq and in support of Palestine, which is the other issue, of course, they, are, they were united. It's, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, in, in the past um, 45, 48 minutes, we've discussed almost every single scope of the world. We talked about America, Europe, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East and North Africa. And, and therefore, it, it brings... You know, it, it it sort of raises the issue that this tiny spot, which is called Gaza, that you could barely see on a, on a world atlas, this tiny spot has had an impact on the entire world. Yeah. I was uh, talking with friends in, in Australia recently, and they say that's amongst the coalition over there. And they're doing some fantastic work, which, you know, I really hope it gets the kind of media coverage it deserves. You know, they're, they're in Melbourne, they're blocking, you know, the Zim uh, ships from being loaded and, uh, and the such. And they've been doing this now for a week or so, uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, part of that coalition are the Aborigines. Again, just like you said, in America, where the Native Americans 
are coming out and saying this is precisely the kind of project, the Zionist project in Palestine, is precisely the kind of eradication of us and our heritage that took place. And they're siding, they're sounding voices that are very much pro-Palestinian. The same in you know, in in Australia, the natives as well there are saying this is the same. And colonials. a very politicized Muslim, Arab Muslim population, Lebanese in the main, very, very, very much so. So we're seeing. I don't know. I mean, I, I sometimes I get caught up, but am I being unreasonable when I say are we seeing a global movement of sorts where people um, all of a sudden are identifying? They're identifying. And to a large ex extent, it's not just historical. It's not just the Aborigines say, saying that this is what the Europeans did to us 200 years ago, or the Native Americans saying this is what Columbus did to us and, and the following Europeans that, that, that came. It's not just about the South Africans, which are more, far more recent, but this is something to do with, um, with oppression and injustice around the world. Whether you are... Uh, a, a, a victim of a colonial project or whether you're a victim of the economic injustice that we all live, the cost of living crisis, to me, that's victimizing millions of our own neighbors and our own fellows here in, the, in this particular country. I, could you see what I'm seeing in terms of this being something that a lot of people identify. I mean, I think you're right. And I think this has been a cumulative process. I think it goes back to the movements against what was called the anti-capitalist movement, protesting against neoliberalism, the movement against the Iraq war, the movement against austerity. You could go through the Jeremy Corbyn, the, that huge ground swastika. We didn't win. And I can't guarantee we're going to win this time. Yeah. There's no guarantees. But they actually left a legacy. And we've been discussing this. I think this is an... It's deeper than the Iraq war movement. I mean, that was significant, but it is, for the reasons we were talking about, it's deeper. And because I think you dig into it, I think you're right, because at the end begin to discover, well, the reason why Israel exists is because it's America's watchdog in the Middle East. But it's also part of a whole neoliberal setup. So these drones we're seeing being used to deadly effect in Gaza are sold by Israel around the world. Massive defense industry. And people start making connections. Neoliberalism, militarism. Why is it where there has been a permanent war? The nature of the states in the United Kingdom, Israel, and the United, uh, United States have been militarized. We're a war state now. making So I think it's going to lead to changes. Now, sometimes these don't happen just as we foresee, but they happen. You know, the moral of history goes deep and then reappears. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's incremental changes because I, I absolutely agree with you that, you know, we probably didn't win uh, despite the mass protests regarding Iraq 20, 21 years ago. But I think that we couldn't have been here today with hundreds of thousands turning out every single week for 16, 17 weeks without Iraq 20, 21 years ago. And whatever happened in between in regarding anti-fascism, anti-capitalism, you know, pro-Palestine, whatever it was. So it's, it is incremental. So hopefully, if anything... I'll give you an example. I mean, Hamza Yusuf, first minister in Scotland, we were talking about, he was a product of that. You know, he was on the streets opposing the war in Iraq and the invasion of Lebanon in 2006. True. He comes Absolutely. out of that. Very true. I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible talking about all of this and the kind of impact that this sliver of land has on the entire world. It's important that we get a win. You know, you said we didn't win, but it's important we get a well, win. Well, I think it's important in terms of just the sheer horror of what is happening in Gaza. We have to stop this. Uh, I think I think Israel is under some pressure here. Uh, now, 
it was a trauma in the wake of seventh uh, October. It was traumatized nation. It was kicking out. It was all trauma victims do. So everything was buried behind the need to get revenge. I think we need to see that it's become obvious even to the Israelis that Netanyahu has got no plan. There is no timetable. There's nothing here. And the fact, as we speak in the hostages, the family, the hostages are occupying the, uh, the Knesset uh, is interesting. Uh, now, I don't think that means there's a seventh cavalry in Israel because for all sorts of reasons, I've never thought that. Basically, the population in the main is, is tied to the Zionist project. But I think the, the strain's there and clearly it's getting to Netanyahu. So I think at some stage we can force an end to this. Now, unfortunately, it's not going to be as quick as we want, but... We talked about trade unions, we've talked about the masses, we've talked about... I'd like to end with talking a little bit about the intellectual class, the authors, the writers, the thinkers, the uh, ideologues, the... Wh wh where do they figure in all of this? Well, I think for the, the truth is the majority uh, accepts the narrative of that kind of clash of civilizations narrative and have bought into this. So the majority, in, in, no, there is massively significant uh, minority here. Uh, we've talked about some of uh, Peter Allborn, uh, some of the writings in the London Review of Books, a guy called Tom Anders, uh, Stevenson, very, uh, very good. Uh, Tarek, I, I could go through a list. I mean, Avishif, who's in Oxford, uh, a number of people. But I think there is still that majority uh, adherence. And, and Second, I think as well, I mean, it's not just that they're bought off in the sense that they're reliant on, uh, you, you know, the, the BBC or the, uh, the military state, which exists in Britain, has now got very deep roots. And it's quite interesting looking back to uh, Blair and the Iraq war. I mean, the people writing his speeches were leading military historians and strategists, academics. I mean, you know, um, so I think there's a lot of that. And plus as well, I don't underestimate the role of anti-Islam here. As I said, I mean, it is it is acceptable to be anti-Islamic. Now, of course, I've got my Muslim friends. You know, I've, I've got a friend, but, you know, probably a Saudi friend, but, you know, it's just acceptable. And the nonsense, which is just taught by so many of, our, uh, of the intellectual class. So I think we have a job to do. But the interesting thing about what's happened is across the world, figures who represent dissent, in fact, Noam Chomsky, for example, I mean, he's got a completely new audience. You know, uh, so I think people, as I say, young people are, are, find, are finding these people. And really, my, my kids are. I mean, they, they know who Noam, Noam Chomsky is, uh, and they would trust Noam Chomsky. It's quite interesting, rather than a politician or someone they see on the BBC. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Thank you.